0: Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. Glad that you're joining me again today. We are uh, studying the book of Revelation together, and I hope you have been able to tune in previously to the earlier studies. We're going chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we're getting probably two thirds to three fourths of the way through. We are going to begin chapter number 15. If you have uh, your Bible there on your phone or hard copy, uh, if you'll be turning there or getting ready to read with me, uh, we finished chapter 14 last week on our episode, and so we want to ch- uh, start into chapter 15. And this chapter is really what we call uh, a parenthetical, uh, it's kind of a pause in the ongoing events, the ongoing uh, narrative, even though the book of Revelation is not a narrative per se. It doesn't just go from you know A to B to C in chronological order. There is a certain narrative that we pick out of it, and here we have kind of a, a interruption in that. Remember, I mentioned earlier, beginning in chapter six, that there are three sets of seven judgments that are found in the book of Revelation. The first seven were the seal judgments. Uh, the second seven judgments were called the trumpet judgments. And now we're going to begin in chapter 16, after this parenthetical, to see the seven vile or bold judgments. But chapter 15 leads us into that. It's a very short chapter, only eight verses, uh, but it leads us into, it's kind of like a pause. I like to refer to it like the calm before the storm. Uh, We have in, in Texas here where I live... Uh, some some rather violent storms, especially during this springtime where you get the the still a little bit colder air lingering on with the warmer air coming up from the south and hits the colder air from the north. You get tornadoes, you get violent thunderstorms. And a lot of times you have kind of a, a lull, a kind of a calm, as it, they call it, before the storm. Uh, that's exactly how I would refer to chapter 15. Before we get into the unleashing of these final seven judgments of God that are just horrifying, they're terrifying as they hit the earth and and, and they're unleashed upon the ungodly. Uh, There's this parenthetical up in heaven that we're going to see, and we've shown you that a number of times in this study of Revelation, how you go from heaven back to earth and and vice versa, back and forth, Uh, and that's what we're going to see today. Now, remember, uh, as far as the two previous sets of seven judgments, they were somewhat unique, Uh, The seven seals really began with the four horsemen, uh, sometimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Uh, and then they gave us two judgments, uh, number five and six. But then the seventh seal was not really a judgment at all. It, It kind of opened up into the seven trumpet judgments, and those judgments were even more horrifying than the the uh, the six seals, if you might call it, because the six seals were kind of just describing the beginnings maybe of the tribulation period, I think, and and then the souls of the martyrs up before the throne of God and the fifth seal. But the seven trumpets really got into some graphic detail of what's going to happen on earth. And the seventh seal, I'm, I'm sorry, pardon me, the seventh trumpet was kind of like a climactic a view of the end of the tribulation. So what I'm saying is, is I do not think the these 21 judgments between the seals, the trumpets, and now the vials, are going to be what you would think of as in chronological order, one after another. They're more like they can happen simultaneously, and some of the language will even seem to be similar. So this is one of the difficult uh, tasks of interpreting the Book of Revelation is is trying to kind of put in some kind of sequence or chronological order all these events, and it's a lot more difficult than it might seem. So I'll try to make note of that as we go along and, and, and be honest with you when it's not possible to be sure of when uh, these things happen. The, the time frame is always, to me, the most difficult part of interpreting the book of Revelation. Well having said that let's jump into chapter fifteen and we'll see that we we basically we've got through uh, the trumpets then we had the uh, chapters twelve through fourteen where, which were really kind of uh, all about the the description of the Antichrist going after Israel a description of the Antichrist as the beast and his cohort the false prophet and all the havoc they're going to rain down on the earth when they control the earth, I think for probably the whole seven years of the tribulation, but at least the last half for sure. Then we had the the great uh, uh, passage about the 144,000 that are martyred and up in heaven and and the two angels that fly through the the heavens with the everlasting gospel. And then last week we finished with a kind of a climactic reference to the final judgment of God probably referring to the Battle of Armageddon, which is yet to be mentioned by name, but I think it's been described already in several different places in Revelation to our study all uh, that we've already covered. Now, let's go uh, into chapter 15. I'll begin by reading verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Well, let's stop there and, and go back and discuss this. Now, these chapter divisions as you can notice, almost exclusively are put where there's the the conjunction and. Uh, Let me go back and see if I'm not right on that. Yeah, I believe I am. Uh, Beginning in chapter 5, at least now chapter 4, was a whole new start to another section of the book. You have the first three chapters, introduction, the the uh, words of Christ to the seven churches, and then chapter four, I think, enters us into the tribulation period. But from then on, every chapter is divided by the conjunction and as a new vision starts. And John says, I saw another sign in heaven. And he's seen a lot of these. The whole book of Revelation is John being given these visions from God through various angels, and we can't even be sure how many and who they all are. They're just. Uh, so many coming at us, but here he sees another sign. Uh, which the word "sign" there uh, we often use to speak of miracles or wonders. It's more of a a vision. Uh, it's a it's a sign. In other words, it points him to it that he might see it and then record it. He call he calls this sign great and marvelous. Now, uh, let me remind you that some of the language in Uh, in in our old King James Version, uh, can be a little uh, different than we use it today. The words great and marvelous, we almost always use for positive things, uh, uh, magnificent things, good things. That's not always the case. Uh, Here, it's referring to, and other places it it does this too, where great could just mean awesome, uh, terrifying. Marvelous could mean amazing, overcoming, unbelievable. Uh, So just keep in mind that words don't always have the exact way we use them in our modern vernacular. Anyway, seven angels. Here's what he sees. This sign is seven angels. And notice what they have, the seven last plagues. We're going to refer to those as the seven vile judgments, but they won't come till chapter 16, so we'll hold off on that. But notice the description, and this pretty much sums up what we're going to see. For in them, in these seven last plagues, is filled up. What does it mean filled up? It's kind of like we got to the, you get to the full extent of a glass. It's been pouring up and up and up and now it's full. Uh, we've seen God's judgment already being poured out, but now this is the end of it. This is the fi- finale of it. This is the the uh, filling up, the end of it, the climax of it. And so it's called the wrath of God. Boy, what a statement. The judgment, the anger of God upon a wicked Christ-rejecting world. Remember, we have to uh, see that God's attributes are at all all in perfect harmony. He is a God of love and of mercy and of grace and of patience and long-suffering and, and gentleness and goodness and, and uh, kindness. Uh, but He's also a God of holiness and righteousness and wrath and judgment upon those who reject Him. And so this book of Revelation is kind of a balance to what we might say all the other a positive attributes of God that we think about, as far as I mean by positive, meaning uh, the, the kindness, the mercy, the approach of God's grace. But here we're coming to God's wrath. And we see a lot of that in this book. Now going on, he sees another vision there. And I saw as it were. Now these phrases are, are so intriguing. Uh, as it were, or like as. Uh, it means that they're not exactly... It's not exactly a sea of glass. I mean, that's, that's just a you know, paradox of terms. You can't have a sea that's made of glass, but it looks like that. Have you ever seen a very calm lake? And you can say, kind of from the, from the Bible, I think we get the terminology from the Bible first, that it, it was just like as smooth as a sea of glass. It was as, as calm as glass. And so, uh, meaning no ripples, no waves, no turbulence, Uh, And he sees this sea of glass mingled with fire. And fire is always judgment. Uh, And really what we're seeing here is a scene before the throne of God. We have seen this throne mentioned several times already. Back in chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 8. Very similar to the language here. Uh, This is before the throne of Almighty God. And notice who's there. Again, we have the martyrs. These appear to be a group of martyrs who are not exactly sure which ones, but notice what it says, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. These are tribulation time martyrs. These are tribulation period martyrs that died sometime uh, at the hand of the beast, but he calls it a victory. You might say, wait a minute, they were killed. Uh, Could that be called a victory? Yes, it's a victory. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Remember from last week's lesson? Henceforth, ye sayeth the Spirit that they, they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. Oh, praise God. These, these martyrs have won the victory. The Antichrist might have thought he defeated them by killing them, but no, they live forever. They have already resurrected to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. They're already with Christ. And he's going to be judged forever in hell. And it says they got the victory over his image because they didn't succumb to it. They didn't submit to it. They didn't uh, uh, recant their faith and, and fall for his lies. It says, and over the number of his name. And notice what they're doing. Standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. This is why we know that this scene referred to as a sea of glass is really before the throne. And out of the throne comes the... The mighty river, the river as clear as crystal we'll see in chapter 22. This is all kind of this symbolic language of this precious, beautiful place uh, in heaven as the throne of God is shown to us and many other visions of heaven here. But this, these harps are referring to the song they're going to sing. Do you know, God uh, believes in and has blessed man with the use of musical instruments. I think it's rather sad that these people in the Church of Christ movement, uh, and I'm not saying they're bad people, all of them, they, you know, they we would have some strong differences with some of their doctrines, but I think it's sad that they're robbing their people, at least the old traditional Church of Christ, would not have any instruments in their church. They felt instruments were worldly, I guess, and wicked. And and of course, they're they're neutral. They're objects. Can a harp be used for evil? I'm sure it can. Can a guitar? Can a piano? Can a set of drums? Can a trumpet? Can a, a violin? Go on and on. Any instrument, if played in a ungodly way or to glorify ungodly things, of course, can be thought of as evil. But those same instruments can be used to glorify God. And here we have an example of God showing these Saints, these martyrs, having harps, uh, having the harps of God. They belong to God. He gives them these harps. And they're going to play these harps, evidently, as they sing at the same time. Remember the great psalmist David? Uh, he was said to have be been the one who played on a harp. Uh, instruments are in the book of Psalms. There's even high-sounding cymbals. I know people kind of equate drums with rock music and loud, raucous, worldly music, and I agree with that. For the most part, there is much ungodly music out there, and the devil is the instigator of that wicked music. But but we don't have to think that every instrument is ungodly. Uh, It's just like anything else. My phone. Uh, My phone is a wonderful tool, and I'm recording this podcast on it. Here's this little device. It's like a little computer that I am able to have an app on here that I can record a podcast and send it out really around the world. Anybody wants to get on our podcast from any a podcast uh a site that they can they can uh, tune into. And so what I'm saying is this po- this uh uh cell phone can be used for evil, yes, but it can be used for good. So people sometimes I think take a extremely narrow position that doesn't need to be the position taken. So here these harps are used for good. Look look at the song they sing. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. That's a great statement. He was the servant of God. What a great man Moses is and was. Uh, He's found so many times in the Bible. Uh, and remember, this song, Now I'm not sure what it, what song this is for sure. It doesn't tell us other than it gives us some words here that are really taken out of Jeremiah and the Psalms. At least they're quoting that. Um, but remember, Moses, after the drowning of the uh, chariots and, and soldiers of Egypt that tried to pursue Moses and the children of Israel through the Red Sea that God had parted the waters and made the dry land for his people. Remember that? after God returned those waters and killed those wicked Egyptians, uh, Moses leads the children of Israel in a song. He's like the song leader in Exodus chapter 15. And later his his sister Miriam leads the women uh, in a song uh, service, if you will. And so I don't know what this song is, but when it says the the song of Moses, the servant of God, it may have some of the same kind of rejoicing. Maybe it just means it's the same praise that... Uh, Moses and the children of Israel gave to God after he gave them great victory. Now these these martyrs have gotten great victory by overcoming the lamb, not recanting their faith, going to heaven and standing before God and his throne. And so uh, it says the, the song of, the, uh, of Moses, the servant, but I love this. Now we have this added and the song of the lamb. Wow. It's almost like maybe Moses is referring to the Old Testament or symbolic of the Old Testament, the Lamb, capital L is Christ. We've seen that so many times. Uh, He may be referring to the New Testament saints, although Christ is God, he's always been there in Old and New Testament, but it may be that's why it calls it the Song of Moses, maybe the servant of God in the Old Testament. The Lamb is pictured as the servant of God in the New Testament. He gave his life for the sheep, uh, uh, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And by the way, Jesus uh, was not anti-music, uh, and I don't think he was anti-instrument either, but we do know that right after he observed uh, the first Lord's Supper in the upper room, right before he would go out to be arrested that night and crucified the next day, the Bible says in a very short little statement, and they sung a hymn, and going out they sung a hymn, probably the Psalms, I'm sure, one of the Psalms. And by the way, speaking of the Psalms, this is where the quote comes from. It comes also from kind of verbatim, not exactly word for word, but verbatim pretty close. uh, In Jeremiah 10, 7 and Psalm 86, 9, my study Bible gives that reference. If you have a good study Bible, it's going to give you those cross references that'll help you. Uh, Great and marvelous. Man, these Psalms and so many other parts of the Bible are just given to praise and adore God, to magnify him to lift him up and worship him. Worship is attributing value, worth to God. And I love this this song of praise. Look at these lyrics. Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Now, we're going to see that his works that are being praised here are really his works of, of retribution, his works of revenge on the enemies of God. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Anybody that doesn't is in deep trouble. For thou only art holy. Oh, there it is. He is so holy, he cannot tolerate or stand for sin, and ultimately it will all be judged. I like this. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest, are made known. This statement, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. Remember the Old Testament uh, spoke of this, but Paul really picked up on it beautifully and under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course. And he said there in... In Philippians 2, one of my favorite books, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, Christ, the Father, has exalted the Son, and given Him a name which is above every name. And here it is, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of things in heaven, and of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That's basically this statement for all nations shall come and worship before thee. Now, it could refer to all the nations that are saved that go into the kingdom. Yes, but I want to use the more uh, fuller explanation or interpretation to say that everyone, whether they're in heaven, earth, or under the earth, Paul just quoted, are going to bow the knee and and confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord. He is master. He is owner. He is God in the flesh. And all who reject him shall forever be punished. But all who have come to him shall forever be blessed. For thy judgments are made manifest. Uh, the word judgments there would, would probably no doubt refer, since we're in this portion of Revelation where God's wrath is being poured out, they are praising God for his judgments on the wicked. Now, this is a unusual and controversial thought, but many times we think of, of worshiping God for His goodness, His blessing, all the wonderful things He does for us, and He does for the world, for that matter. But according to the Bible, we're to praise Him for His justice, His judgments on the wicked. Now, we're not the one taking justice. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. But when God takes judgment on the wicked, and He carries out His retribution on them, we can praise Him for what He's done. Hey, we ought to be glad when justice is served. Are you, are you glad when justice is served in our society? We should be. When some heinous murderer goes out and kills some innocent people, some children or something, they ought to be brought to justice. And by the way, according to the Bible, capital punishment is still in force. I'm amazed how many times I read and see Christian organizations or those who at least are carrying signs and calling themselves Christians claiming that the death penalty is not of God. I don't know what Bible they're reading from, but according to the Scriptures, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New, uh, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by his uh, by, by man shall his blood be shed. Romans 13 justifies that. Uh, God struck down Ananias and Sapphira dead on the spot. Uh, there is justice that God carries out upon the wicked. And a government, human government, is still to mandate uh, the death of those worthy of death who commit crimes uh, that... Bring on that capital punishment. Well, let me go on. Let me try to finish this uh, chapter. because it's a short one, but let me read verses 5 through 8. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Wow, well, let's go back and look at this because we're still in that same scene, we're still in heaven, but now we come to uh, a specific place in heaven, we leave the the scene of the sea of glass before the throne where all these martyrs are singing this glorious song to God. But now we go to the picture of this temple, and it's, it's called by uh, both names from the Old Testament. And, and after that, I looked, he said, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. It's almost three words, all with the letter T, to describe what in the Old Testament is the place where God dwells. It was first called the tabernacle that was built by Moses, the mobile tabernacle in the wilderness, Later, it would be made the temple by Solomon in Jerusalem, and the testimony was really the place at the Ark in the back room, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple, uh, where God dwelt uh, over the mercy seat of the Ark. And so we have kind of a threefold description. This is where God is. I looked, and behold, that's what I saw. It was opened up. Now, this is a fantastic thought because if you remember your Old Testament well enough and you have to to understand Revelation and all the New Testament, I would remind us, um, you could not open that, that last uh, uh, covering. It was called the veil um, that separated the holy place from the most holy place. When the priest according and the high priest went into the holy place, uh, the first room of the covered tabernacle, later even the, the permanent covered building called the temple. There was, of course, the menorah, the golden candlestick on your left, the golden altar of incense straight ahead. To the right would be the golden, uh, the, the table of showbread. And then there was this veil, and it was only a curtain, but you couldn't see through it. And no one but the high priest, one time per year, on the Day of Atonement, on the tenth day of the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, he could alone go in there one time with blood to pour on the mercy seat to bring forgiveness to himself and Israel. So nobody else can go. It was never opened. In fact, if you'd opened that veil, and any other mortal man would have would have seen that ark and seen God's presence. It'd be like coming into the presence of God, you'd be struck down dead on the spot. So the very fact that this says this, this scene of the temple tabernacle and testimony is opened is giving us some very amazing insight. It's telling us that God's mercy has been extended. His wrath that would normally strike down dead anybody that came into his presence is now being opened because of Christ, because his blood was shed. And, and he, whether literally or symbolically, I'll leave that to greater Bible interpreters, interpreters than myself, whether he literally put the blood up there, I, I believe he did, but some think it's symbolic. I don't care. I know this. Jesus has made a way for us to come where the veil has been opened up. Remember what we saw in Hebrews 4? Let me go back to that great passage on prayer, but it's a great thought. Hebrews 4, uh, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have been given that access. The veil's been torn. Remember when Jesus died? Immediately when he died, the veil was torn from top to bottom, giving access to God to all mankind who will come through Christ. And I think this is pictured by the opening up of this temple, tabernacle, and testimony room. I think it's literal. I don't think there's any reason to say this is symbolic. I think there is a literal replication or or, or actual the uh, authentic temple and tabernacle, the replica, the replication of it was on earth in the buildings of the tabernacle and temple. Anyway, out of that room, as if they were meeting in there with God, and that's probably a good way to think of it, came the seven angels that are going to have these seven vials that are going to be given to them. So here comes the angels. They're servants of God. They do his work. Having the seven plagues. Wow. Well, he's, he's basically just summarizing. They're going to have the plagues given to them symbolically through these vials or bowls that they'll pour out, kind of like pouring out the wrath of God. We've seen that, that phrase used. It's symbolic, but it's horrific too. It's like God is so angry, he's just dumping out his anger on the earth. Now, notice what it says of these angels. They're clothed in pure and white linen. That means you can't blame them. They're not not evil. They're not wrong for doing this. Hey, anybody that does God's bidding, that does God's service, even when it's a service as hard uh, for us to understand as killing the the wicked, Uh, it's a pure work. It's of white linen. It's in the will of God. Anybody doing God's work is clothed in His protection, His provision, His righteousness. And so even though these angels are going to carry out a, a very horrifying set of judgments beginning in chapter 16, we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. Hey, God still sees them as pure and white. And having their breast girded with golden girdles, uh, breast their chest, uh, their, their midsection. Girded means like a belt wrapped around them. That pictures the protection of God, the the uh, the strength of God. You know, the strength of your bodies in your core, from your shoulders down to your midsection to your waist is basically your core element. And it, that's how strong they were. They're girded. They're they're wrapped in the strength of God to carry out. It's gonna take God's strength, because it's gonna be God's work to pour out these judgments. Now, remember the four beasts that we saw way early in, in Revelation chapter 4? Well, they, they've been around off and on. Here's one of them comes uh, on the scene again. And one of the four beasts, and I think they do picture the four gospels, but we said that earlier, and so go back there and get that study in chapter 4. But anyway, they gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials. I know the new translations call it bowls. That's okay. It's not a bad translation. It just means a container, some kind of a basin, uh, like they would use, by the way, to bring the blood in on that day of atonement and take blood to pour on the, uh, uh, the altar and, to, uh, and all these different feast days would have these commemorations of blood being poured out. Remember, it's, it means an innocent died for the guilty. And the blood is the life of that sacrifice. Jesus poured out his blood. He had to die by bloodshedding, Not just dying did he save us. He he, he saved us by his blood being shed, his life being poured out. That was the ultimate sacrifice he was making, giving his life as a burnt offering, as a trespass offering, as a sin offering uh, where the whole animal was consumed. And one of the four beasts, notice he gives them these seven golden vials. And they're full of what? The wrath of God. There it is. Remember we talked about the wrath of God being filled up? Here it is. The wrath of God. It's full. Boy, it's going to come to its totality. It's it's come to its end. Um, Now, this doesn't mean that this is the last time that we'll ever see or read about the wrath of God in this book. Because we'll see the wrath of God uh, at the, even at the end of the tribulation period. I, I'm sorry, pardon me, we are almost at the end of the tribulation. I mean, the millennial kingdom. It's amazingly so puzzling, puzzling, uh, puzzling, I should say, to us is, is how the fact that the end of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, God's going to allow one last-ditch attempt by the devil to deceive the world, and then his wrath will be poured out even that time and then at the great white throne. And I think that's the last time the wrath of God is seen and will ever be known and needed because he'll finally punish all the wicked by sending those who rejected his son to the lake of fire. So even though it says that his wrath is full and it was filled up, it doesn't mean it's ended. We're going to see some more about it and we're even going to see it quite a bit in these next several chapters, really from 16 to 19 we're going to see a lot of God's wrath being poured out. And so the last verse, let's close with this, verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Now this reminds us, there's so much in the Old Testament that you can correlate and bring into your New Testament study that you maybe get better understanding. I think you do. I think it helps us to interpret the the, uh, New Testament by the Old Testament accounts, and especially something is, is hard to understand at times is this book of Revelation. Notice, and the temple is filled. Remember when, when Moses built the tabernacle and at the end of chapter 40 of Exodus, when it was constructed, the whole tabernacle was complete, it says they dedicated it and, and God entered into the tabernacle and his glory appeared off that mercy seat and it, and it was so great, his presence, that it was like a cloud of smoke to where the priests could not even stay in the tabernacle. They couldn't even minister. They couldn't even do their jobs. And by the way, it happens exactly the same way when Solomon finishes the first temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, and they dedicate the temple, and he gives this great prayer to God for God's presence to be in the temple. At the end of that eighth chapter of 1 Kings, you'll see that God's glory appears in that new temple. And they can't minister there either. And it's very similar to this: the subject of the glory of God. It's it's a great it's a great teaching. It's a great uh, study throughout the Bible. In fact, I have a message now ready to preach, possibly this Sunday, if not soon, uh, on the subject of following the glory of God, not only through the Bible but through all of history. It's a tremendous study, uh, my dear friend and and uh, mentor, uh, brother. Jonathan Stewart, who has spoken on our podcast before, was one of the first people to introduce me to the subject of the glory of God many, many years ago in my ministry. And, and he was right. It's a fantastic study. And here we have the glory of God. The word glory, the glory of God is really, the best way to describe it is the visible manifestation of God, the visible presence of God. Now, it takes different forms, and it's a mysterious study at times, but it's a real, really profitable one. Well... It ends by saying, and uh, the temple is filled with his glory and from his power and that no man was able to enter into the temple. Just like I told you at the tabernacle and the temple dedication. Here it is again. I tell you, when God shows up, man is silent. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is an awesome, amazing, magnificent, terrifying God. I mean, God, yes, He's our Father, and we love Him, and we we have a wonderful relationship with Him, but never lose the awe of God. Never lose the power of God and the holiness of God and the otherworldliness of God. He is so much greater and higher. Remember, He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. And we better always keep that uh, separation from getting too familiar with God as if He's our buddy and the man upstairs and all these other blasphemous statements. He is holy and magnificent. And it says, no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. It's like God's got to finish His wrath uh, before man will, will realize ultimately uh, His majesty and His purpose and plan. And so this has been a great study and we finish finished now the 15th chapter. Lord willing, we'll pick up next week on chapter 16. Remember, our motto always Conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you.